Hi everybody, it's Duncan Green here with the weekly roundup of posts from From Poverty to Power. I sometimes wonder whether it's worth doing these things. The numbers aren't massive, but the people who do listen to it seem to find it really useful and they, they send me nice emails and things. So I'll give it. I'll keep going for the moment. I mean, it's um, it's also quite good for me to just read back over what's gone up over the course of the week and sort of get a sense of how the blog is evolving because it's changing quite fast at the moment. Pause for slurp of coffee. Right, so let's get started. First up this week was um, a very nice topic, how to have difficult conversations. In this case, difficult conversations between academics working with practitioners. And I've been on both sides of this um, of this conversation in the past, and it is remarkable how little mutual respect is often demonstrated. You know, academics think practitioners are basically a bit stupid and quite often quite venal. Um, practitioners think that um, you know, academics are um, uh, really sort of not in the real world, just interested in ideas and not making a difference. Um, I used to work with uh, Joe Cox, the, the, the Labour MP who was tragically killed a couple of years ago. Um, when she was at Oxfam and she was head of uh, advocacy and I was head of research and she referred to my entire um, uh, role as beard stroking which I think even within Oxfam demonstrates that there's a certain you know lack of mutual respect so anyway this paper is from MIT GovLab from MIT GovLab um, uh, by Vaya Lipovsek and Alisa Zoma who've both been on again also on both sides of the divide and they look at five difficult conversations all of them really all of them really resonated with me what if you get the wrong results you know what if the results are negative that you disprove what the practitioners think is the case or null you show that it makes no difference what yeah what they're doing it makes no difference um prepare people in advance for these kind of conversations be willing to have them second conversation how long is this going to take so practitioners always in a hurry Academics have a longer time scale. They're willing to take longer to get to the level of rigor that they what they seek. Again, an important conversation to to manage. Who's going to put time into this? So typically, the boss of a practitioner organisation will say, "Yes, great idea. Come on in," and then the staff will go, "Oh my God, who is this person asking us annoying questions or not understanding what we're doing?" And they will be the ones who are required to work with the academic so how do you make sure you get buy-in right through the organization rather than just a green light from the top who's this for so you know academics and practitioners need to understand who the target audience is and only then can you really talk about what the uh, you know what products what outputs what kinds of communication are you going to do it depends on the target audience and then finally who's in charge the power question so you know is it that the academics are in charge? Is it that the practitioners are in charge? Who's paying? Money brings power, but so does status. And there's a whole, always a complex power play in these conversations. So I thought that was a great paper and really worth reading. Second up this week was uh, me musing. Uh, why so many uprisings? Why now? You know, we have every time, yeah, I turn on my timeline in the morning and uh, there's Protests going on in Colombia, Hong Kong, Iran, Iraq, Chile, Lebanon, and lots of other places. Um, yeah, possibly the biggest wave of, of mass protest uh, since the late 80s, early 90s, 
or perhaps since 68, since the sort of year of revolution. Um, so I've been, you know, watching how people talk about this and how people think about this. What they tend to do is say, well, this just proves that what I've been working on all along is the key issue. So you get a lot of sort of self-referencing going on. But the question I always ask is, well, why is it happening in 2019 rather than 2009 or 2029? Why now? And I think that helps get through you know, get through some of the, the, the more sort of circular arguments. So the standard arguments for why we've got this wave of protest. Inequality. Well, maybe. But on the other hand, inequality has been around for a long time and in by some metrics has fallen since the financial crisis in 2008. So that doesn't really explain the why now. A youth bulge. Lots of this was also um, given credit for the for a lot of the Arab Spring in 2011. A generation of people coming through, especially coming through college, uh, coming out with qualifications, not finding jobs, hugely frustrated, fed up with the old gerontocracy in charge, often corrupt. They feel like they're blocking them from progressing. So a lot of frustration. Okay, but then there's quite a lot of you know older people on the demonstrations and the youth bulge isn't new either. Social media, it's all down to Twitter, WhatsApp, Telegram, whatever. Partly true, I think it's clearly become a vital part of these protests. But I am sort of still sympathetic with um, Malcolm Gladwell, who wrote a piece around the Arab Spring, saying, OK, you know, social media is really important, but you don't walk into the tear gas because someone has friended you on Facebook. You need kind of deep bonds of trust and loyalty, which are not really forged on social media. So other things have to take place to get the kind of courage and group solidarity that you you see on the protests in some very repressive settings right now. Copycat. I think actually people are inspired by what goes on in neighbouring countries in particular and say, well, it's just as bad here, so let's get up, let's get out. So you've seen protests spread across Latin America in different forms in different places, but there probably is a sort of a domino effect, if you like. I think there's something, and then there's something more subtle about, you know, after a shock like 2008, like the financial crisis, which kind of knocked the stuffing out of the triumphalist globalization, there is no alternative kind of narrative. How long does it take for that to turn into political expression? And I think what you've seen is an erosion of political resilience in, in, in terms of this, the, the, the ruling elites and the ruling um, institutions in many countries. You know, the death of deference that people no longer sort of look up to politicians. In fact, they look down on them and they see them as all corrupt and crooks. Um, and what that means is that the political system has, doesn't seem to be able to absorb grievance and complaint like it used to. It doesn't take much to tip people over and say, well, the, the politicians aren't going to sort this. Let's get out on the street. So all this is yeah, fascinating. No, no clear answers, obviously. Um, but rep some interesting challenges to political activism and to polite activism. So the kind of thing that I think Oxfam does, you know, we like polite forms of protest where you, 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 know, you hold up your banners and you do a protest and then you say, right, now let's sit down and talk and we'll come to some sort of negotiated agreement. We'll convene different stakeholders to find solutions. That's not what's going on in a lot of these places. And Paul O'Brien from Oxfam America raised a really interesting point about what does this 
tell us about our theory of change and whether that theory of change is actually out of date. Um, and then just as I was writing this, Branko Milanovic wrote uh, you know, a characteristically lovely, brilliant piece. He thinks, he calls this, this this wave of uprisings the first revolution of the globalization era, which is, you know, stepping it up a bit. Um, and what the interesting conclusion he comes to is that the politics has yet to emerge that can channel this kind of unhappiness and unrest. So you're in a state of kind of inchoate rebellion, which is waiting, the politics is lagging behind and it's waiting for political expression, um, which I think is a fascinating way to look at it. And then finally, we just got a sort of sidetracked talking to, within Oxfam about you know, the songs that accompany these protests. And we're now going to put together a, a, a playlist. And we started getting people's suggestions on uh, Twitter and uh, we're going to put together a protest playlist, which could be a lot of fun. Next up was one of the uh, a power shifts post by, uh, it was an interview with Maria Teresa Nera Laron from the Philippines. She's a climate advisor, climate activist, and an advisor to the Rosa Luxemburg Foundation. Um, and this was on what's still missing from the climate and development talks. And uh, Teten, she's called, um, uh, is talked about, um, because people in the Philippines never use their whole name, they always have nicknames. Teten talked about, a number of things which I thought were really interesting. One is climate climate migrants that we need. This is only going to get bigger. People who who flee the country because of the climate crisis, and we need some kind of international recognition, international agreement on climate migrants. She was very fairly disillusioned with the whole process of the SDGs, the Sustainable Development Goals and government reporting against their climate change commitments and SDG commitments. She sees kind of um, oceans of greenwash out there in governments producing glossy reports, but not actually feeling the teeth of an accountability process. She raised an interesting question, which is, you know, is it is it a problem that the climate change conversation takes place in its own little bubble, in its own silo? Yeah, environment ministries will uh, tend to tend to lead on it not the finance ministries or the other other government departments, which lead to leads to a certain sort of lack of coherence between what governments are doing in one part and what they're doing on climate change. And then finally, she did a, you know, a little curtain raiser for the COP, the Conference of the Parties, which will take place in Madrid next month in December, uh, having been moved from Chile because of all the protests back to the protests. Um, and she talks about some positives, you know, the, the the change in narrative from climate change to climate emergency may seem trivial, may seem semantic, but actually is very important. The level of, you know, the level of anger and activism shown by the student strikes, by Extinction Rebellion, by Greta Thunberg. Um, but she sees governments lagging badly uh, on this and some real blockers. She mentioned, I hadn't heard this, at the last intercession, the meeting between the climate cops, um, in June in Bonn, the US and Saudis were still questioning the science um, and got the, uh, got, the, the, got that meeting to downgrade its language to just take note of the findings on what, what a 1.5 degree climate, climate uh, temperature rise would mean, which is pretty disastrous. And, and this is only getting worse because of the retreat from multilateralism the turning in of many countries, um, uh, north and south, the rise of populism. So she thinks the, the political panorama is not great. <clears throat> uh, 
And then the final piece was a photo story. We're trying new things on From Poverty to Power. I really like this. This is a, f- a photo story um, about an indigenous group in central Kenya called the Tharakans, um, who have spent a five-year process mapping local knowledge to regenerate lands. And, 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 and this is in particular in response to climate change. So what they did was get together um, in a process led by the Society for the for Alternative Leadership and Transformation, SALT, I like it, supported by the Gaia Foundation. They got elders, youth, hunters, beekeepers, different groups within the Tharakans to come together every month for five years and, and, and start mapping, uh, d- drawing up what they call eco-cultural maps and calendars. And the idea is to revive customary law, natural sites, indigenous seeds, a bunch of different sort of the heritage issues which could be part of the answer to adapting to climate change. Another thing I really liked about this is the process was originally developed in the Colombian Amazon with indigenous groups there over 30 years ago and has, uh, and has been, you know, gone south-south to central Kenya, which is really nice. And what these conversations are every month are essentially talking tools. So they're ways of getting people talking to bring out knowledge and get them thinking about the future. So it's kind of like a strategic plan, but much more interesting from the sound of it. Um, And now what's happening is that this process is spreading to other African countries and they're starting to build a movement around that, this kind of way of using talking tools to recover indigenous knowledge and practices as part of the response to climate change which I think is just a really exciting and sort of original take. And it's a photo story, so you can see what they're actually doing. And with that, I shall end for today. Have a good weekend, everyone.